Linda Coley is Shelby M.C. Davis, 1958 Professor of History at Princeton University in the United States. She previously taught at Yale, LSE, and Cambridge, and she's written on a variety of subjects under the umbrella of British national and imperial history. In this episode, she places the current state of the British and European unions into historical perspective. She also discusses the discipline of global history and shares insights into her newest book, A Study of Constitutions and Constitution Making. Thank you so much for joining me. To start off with, I wanted to sort of take note of the astounding variety of things you've written. Um, you're primarily a historian of empire and particularly the British Empire, but you also um, engage a lot with the field through unique lens. So what I'm referring to is, for example, in your earlier books, um, Captives or The Ordeal of Elizabeth Marsh, um, any number of your essays. And with that in mind, how would you sort of describe your approach to history? Well, I don't think I've ever had a, a monolithic approach to history. I mean, I started out as a political historian of 18th century England. My PhD, which I did in Cambridge, was on the mid 18th century Tory party, which is what one used to write about, um, you know, still in the 1970s, which is when it was. Uh, and that was my first book, which came out in 1982, I think. Um, but I've always been influenced, I think many people are, by uh, the scholars I've met along the way, uh, as well as changing currents of thought. And when I moved to Yale in 1982, it was partly that I realized that I couldn't teach British history in the same way as I could in Cambridge, England. But it was also that I met lots of different scholars from different backgrounds. Uh, there was a, a very good group of uh, US historians at Yale. At that point, uh, it was probably the strongest university in the world for US history. Uh, I encountered Chinese history through Jonathan Spence, um, I met Peter Gay, uh, one of the great historians of the Enlightenment. And partly because of that, I, I sort of began adjusting and amplifying my ideas. I also encountered in New Haven uh, the Centre of British Art, um, which is, I don't know if you've ever been there, it's a, an extraordinary art gallery uh, set up by Paul Mellon based on his collections, really devoted to the visual side of the British past. Uh, and it was partly because of seeing those wonderful images in the uh, British Arts Centre that I began to be interested in using the visual in history. And that helped to shape uh, Britain's um, which came out in 92 uh, and is, of course, a, a, isn't just illustrated, but uses visual images as an integral part of the analysis. Uh, and that interest in the visual is something that stayed with me. Uh, and then partly because I met John Demos, who was then at Yale, and he'd written about captivity stories, uh, I became interested in that um, and that helped to shape my next book, 
big book, which was Captives. Um, and then when I, I mean, I spent five years in the London School of Economics on a research chair, which was great. But then when I took this job in Princeton in 2003, um, my ideas had changed again. But Princeton's history department has a large number of historians who are interested in transcontinental history, global history. Uh, and, um, you know, I had lots of good conversations with them, uh, read some of their books. And the interest in global history, which is very strong in Princeton, uh, has helped to forge my next book, which should have come out this autumn, but because of the bug will come out next spring uh, on global history and constitutions. So it's partly that, you know, most I've been doing history for a long time and many people's ideas change over time naturally and they probably should. But I have been influenced, as I say, by the scholars I've met along my journey. And what do you think is the value of your approach or the approach you've come to through these influences? You know, my view is that history is an eclectic trade and it should be and people write in different ways and are interested in different things so i would i have never wanted to push one particular methodology or one particular way of doing things um that's not my style but i do think that uh, you know it's a cliche that what is now called globalization has helped to nourish the growing interest in world history, global history. Uh, And that's clearly true to a degree. But I think this has had a benevolent effect in that global history, which is only one methodology among many, but it does make you more alert to the way that developments in one particular country or one particular region are bound up with developments in other places. Uh, And that's partly why I got interested in written constitutions, which have usually been studied very much in terms of individual nation states. But as I began to research them and look at how they were drafted and how they were argued over, it was clear that people who drafted constitutions had read constitutions from other countries uh, or were trying to design a constitution that would um, uh, magnify the reputation of their particular state and impress an international audience. In other words, these are not just national texts they have to be understood in the context of multiple nations and very often multiple continents. But this approach also allowed me to to look at, I mean, global historians talk about this all the time, um, acknowledging the importance both of the local and of the global. In other words, uh, constitutions have specificity, but they also normally have a wider audience and purchase. And so by looking at constitutions, 
you can, I think, get a more balanced view uh, and a more interesting view on the interactions between the local and the global, between the specific and the transnational, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was one of the things I was interested in, in this book, which I have just finished. I'll ask you a bit more about the book in a little while. First, I want to sort of look back at some of your previous work, which um, embraces at once uh, the very small scale. So, for example, in uh, Elizabeth Marsh, this one individual, and also the very large scale, um, like the making of an entire empire. So how have you sort of balanced these two extremes? I like writing different kinds of books, and in a sense... Uh, I benefit, I suppose, from working in the United States where I don't have to abide by the rules of REF uh, or whatever it's called now. Um, but in the UK, and you know, there are advantages of this, but I think there are also disadvantages. Academics have to produce a certain number of learned articles books, whatever, but the emphasis is much more on learned articles every four or five years. And uh, that can be good in some ways. I think it can also act as a block on creativity and moving in new directions. And I don't have those bureaucratic pressures in the United States. So I can keep changing direction even if I know that by changing direction, it's going to take me quite a long time to read into another subject and write another book. Um, but I can do that and, and I have taken advantage of that. But also again, I, I like adopting different prisms, different lenses through which I look at the past and having finished my book, Captives, which was a, a macro study, though based on individual testimonies, I came across Elizabeth Marsh uh, in the course of writing that book, Captives. And I'd always wanted to try my hand at biography, but not to write a conventional biography uh, you know I feel that the world probably has enough biographies of George III or think of another name um, and that I wanted to write a different kind of biography so having discovered Elizabeth Marsh in the course of writing Captives I became interested in her, but I, it, again, it was partly serendipity. I was giving uh, a lecture in uh, Los Angeles uh, for uh, UCLA, and uh, I talked about Elizabeth Marsh in relation to Morocco, which was all I really knew about her. And someone came up to me and said, oh, well, we've got a manuscript of by Elizabeth Marsh in our library and she's traveling in India in this one uh, and I thought my god um, this is fantastic so 
And if I hadn't given that lecture in UCLA, I don't think I would have ever written a book about Elizabeth Marsh because, uh, you know, I might have written a long article, but it would, that's all I could have done. But having found this Indian journal or being told about this Indian journal, um, I then again serendipitously was checking the genealogy and discovered that she was conceived in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, that uh, her parentage uh, and the ethnicity of her mother was unclear. Um, I discovered that there were connections with settlement in Florida after the Seven Years' War. I discovered that there were connections with trade in Spain. So I, I found that I could use this woman to write a different kind of, not global history, though it became pretty close to global history, but to use this very modest woman in terms of her social background. She's the daughter of a ship's carpenter, so nothing's art about her at all, um, except that she's a ferocious survivor. Uh, and that I could use her life, partly using her writings, partly looking at other texts, to tell a tale about how uh, maritime connections in particular between different continents and imperial connections were speeding up in the middle of the 18th century. So it became a different kind of biography. Mm. Could you talk a bit more about sort of the global history of empire or the British Empire specifically and what that tradition looks like? I don't see myself as an imperial historian uh, because I have done different things. For me, I think writing about the British Empire to the extent I did in Captives became a stage along the way to thinking about global history. And you know, the, the, the connection is partly because British aggression and migration and investment sprawls across so many parts of the globe. Uh, the, the connections between British imperial history and global history are there. They're not the same thing, but you can be led, and I was led from one to the other, to a degree. In addition to writing from a chiefly historical perspective, you've also offered a, a bit of commentary on the contemporary world. So for example, with Acts of Union and Disunion, um, which was really highly praised. So how, how have these two strands of work played into each other? Well, I suppose I believe, um, and not everybody does, but I do believe that if you have historical background and knowledge and can put it to the benefit of a wider public uh, by placing current events in a longer and broader context, then that is a good thing to do. 
uh, and I've done this in various ways. I I write occasional pieces, though not when I'm finishing a book like now, but I have done different kinds of journalism. I've also um, organized some big public exhibitions, as for example, in the British Library when I um, helped organize a, a big exhibition about constitutional texts, um, which I really enjoyed doing. Uh, and then I got this offer, would I give these talks on Radio 4 uh, about um, fractures and connections in the UK. Uh, and this was in advance of um, the referendum on Scottish independence. And they wanted a kind of historical background. And first of all, they offered me 10 talks and then it became 15 talks. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do 15 talks, I might as well get a small book out of it, which is what I did. Uh, and um, that was really interesting to do. Uh, I found it quite challenging because speaking to a radio audience is very different than giving lectures. Uh, and I've been trained to give lectures, so I have a, a lecturing style, which you can't do on the radio. It's off-putting. You've got to draw the audience in more and be more conversational and so forth. And that was, that was quite hard for me, but I had a very good radio editor who, whenever I got too much into lecturing mode, would shut me up and say, no, no, Linda, you've got to, that's not the way to do it here. So um, I, I think I got better as I went along through the 50 broadcasts. In the six years since you published um, Acts of Union and Disunion, a lot has changed about the concept of union in the UK. So how do you sort of see these new developments um, given your work as a historian? Well, um, I haven't done quite deliberately any political journalism in recent years. That was partly because um, I was focused on the book, partly because I was so utterly depressed and remain utterly depressed by the results of the Brexit referendum um, and really didn't know how to react to that in print. But also I felt that things were so fast moving and almost unknowable. And to a degree, I still think that. Uh, I think it's perfectly possible that Brexit will lead to a fragmentation of the UK, that uh, you know, this isn't a new uh, or novel perception that um, the two parts of the island of Ireland will reunite during the next 10 or 20 years, that Scotland will peel off uh, and rejoin the EU. That's completely possible to me. Um, on the other hand, it could be that the current coronavirus and the utter disruption 
of uh, the economy across the globe is going to put such strains on the EU, not to mention the UK, that it won't be feasible, say, for Scots to think, well, we're going to leave the UK and rejoin the EU and we'll be fine. Um, it may be fine, but until we see the political and economic ramifications of this current appalling emergency, I think it's difficult to know, it's difficult to anticipate or prophesy what's going to happen because there are so many imponderables and new beginnings. Could you maybe put some of these things in historical perspective using your background in global history? What, what do these things mean? Well, oh gosh, that's, that's a difficult one. What I would say is that, and this, this is something that I've, again, explored on the book that's coming out, um, that great crises, be they wars or plagues like this one, um, tend to have political as well as economic repercussions. Um, for example, one of the great precipitants of new constitutions in the past have been episodes of major warfare. Uh, now, I do think the combination of Brexit and the coronavirus uh, horror is likely to have all sorts of uh, major consequences for the UK as elsewhere, uh, and that some of those consequences are likely to be political, not just economic and social. Um, if, for example, Scotland peels off and becomes independent, then uh, what remains of the UK, and this will become even more uh, urgent if uh, Ireland reunites and Northern Ireland also peels off from the UK, then the political structure and legitimization of what remains of the UK will have to be rethought and redesigned. Does that mean that what remained of the UK would get a new political constitution? I don't know, but it seems possible. Or one could think of something else, that at the end of the major Second World War, um, you know, there was a, a complete, um, well, not a complete, but a considerable overhaul of the British state. Uh, Winston Churchill, for all his reputation as a war, war, war leader, was um, defeated in post-war election, uh, and you've got a very different Labour uh, government coming in, which introduced or confirmed the introduction of the national health system. So these major crises um, 
you can't just finish them and then pat everyone on the back and say, well, well done, let's, let's continue as we were before. That isn't normally how it happens. Um, and it will be deeply interesting and possibly not very nice um, to see what these shocks to the system are going to do uh, to the political organization of these islands, continental Europe, the world at large. I'm curious then about your thoughts on, I guess, the world at large. How do you see this sort of developing in light of recent global history? Um, I, I, you know, I wish I knew. I, I, I would be um, making a lot of money if I knew the answer to that. You could make the argument that this, and again, people have, other people have said this, you could make the argument that uh, these shocks will accelerate um, the advance of China at the expense of the United States because China seems to have recovered. It may have originated the disease, but it seems to, at the moment, to be recovering from the disease rather faster than the United States is likely to do. Uh, and so it may be that China gets a kind of leg up from this emergency and the United States uh, becomes more problematic. But again, who knows? We, we don't know what is going to happen with this crisis. We don't know how long it will take. We don't know where it's going to do most economic and social damage. And we don't know uh, where its political repercussions, and there will be there, uh, will prove most divisive. But I don't think that there's any doubt that I mean, historians uh, now know that something like the Black Death had massive repercussions which worked through different continents for centuries. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if this plague that we are living through at present uh, will also have not just an immediate terrible effect or a, a sort of effect over the next couple of decades, but it is quite possible that in 100 years or 200 years, if the world is still in being by then, historians will be saying, ah, oh, that was one of the major turning points. So I said earlier that we'd come back to your upcoming book. As you said, it'll be published in March 2021, and the title sounds absolutely fascinating. The Gun, the Ship, and the Pen, Warfare Constitutions, and the Making of the Modern World. So can you talk a bit more about what the book is and what you've sort of argued or discovered in it? The book ranges widely uh, between about 1750 and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. Uh, though it overlaps both of those dates each end. And as I say, I, I, I became and have long been deeply intrigued by written constitutions. 
partly because I was born and educated in the UK, which is one of uh, very few states now which doesn't have a written constitution. And then I moved to the United States, which makes, as you know, a cult of its written constitution, even though lots of people don't know what it contains, but never mind. Um, so uh, when I came to America and, and got used to things, I, I, you know, I found this, this different kind of constitutional system really interesting. But I also found a lot of constitutional history, very narrow, very nation-based, often very celebratory and sometimes quite legalistic. And I mean, written constitutions take off and start spreading precisely, almost precisely at the same time as the novel really takes off and spreads. And this is not accidental. Um, written constitutions are very much tied up with the spread of print, uh, widespread literacy, um, interesting, interesting different kinds of texts. And I was rather surprised that literary scholars, for example, hadn't looked at written constitutions because they are one of the great sources and they're not arid documents at all in many cases. Uh, they range over all sorts of topics. They're very rich on gender history. They're very rich, increasingly so, on attitudes to the environment, um, as well as politics and law and systems of government. And so I, I wanted to work out why it was that these kind of single document constitutional texts only really got going, there are precursors, but only really got going in printed form in the mid 18th century. And why by the First World War, these kind of texts existed in every continent. And that's really what this book is about, how do you explain that trajectory? And obviously this was vast and I didn't really know initially how to discipline it. And then I thought, well, actually another recurring theme, which is linking up with this is the incidence of war and how warfare and constitutional rethinking and writing are bound up with each other. So, hence the book, really. This is very interesting, especially what you said earlier about constitutions as being sort of celebratory and, and, and also the rise of constitutions paralleling the rise of the novel. That's really interesting. Could you talk a bit more about constitutions as, I guess, national emblems? The book is organised into eight big chapters. Uh, I can't tell the whole exhaustive story. Uh, so each of these chapters looks at a 
particular theme. Uh, and in fact, um, constitutions and the spread of constitutions are not just to do with the nation state, they are closely bound up in all sorts of ways with empires. Uh, empires repeatedly have used written constitutions uh, to cement uh, their power, uh, to bring different peoples under control, um, to pursue their particular agendas. I mean, Napoleon would be uh, one of the great examples as he builds up his continental European empire um, by invading different states, uh, he frequently gives these or arranges these new conquests to be given uh, a written constitution as uh, an aid, he thinks, to controlling them. Um, well, sometimes it works or it works briefly, but very often um, when an imperialist like Napoleon uh, introduces, if you like, the germ of a new written constitution into a territory he's trying to control, um, this has constitutional repercussions beyond what uh, the empire builder, Napoleon in this case, anticipated. And uh, the great example, I suppose, would be um, the French invasion of the Iberian Peninsula in 1807, 8, 9. Um, Napoleon tries to create a new written constitution for Spain. Um, people who were opposed to him take up the idea uh, and this leads to a, an opposition constitution for Spain, the Constitution of Cadiz of 1812, um, which becomes one of the most publicized constitutions of the 19th century and a major influence on constitution making in um, Spanish America when it collapses and moves into independence. So it seems to me that, that empires have to be brought into the story. And again, this is part of the problem of just looking at constitutions through the celebratory lens of the nation state, uh, or merely thinking that they are specifically to do with a particular place. They can be, but they often have influence in other parts of the globe. Um, another great example of, if you like, the way that empire can have strange repercussions is, as far as I know, the first constitution ever uh, to give women equal voting rights with men um, is written for Pitcairn Island in 1838 by a visiting Royal Navy officer. Um, and Pitcairn is ostensibly a British possession. Um, it's so far away and it's so tiny um, that in fact, the British can't really do anything with it at all, except claim it. And it's mainly non-white population, he thinks needs a constitution. And since there's only about a hundred people on Pitcairn, 
he really said, and he's also an idealist, he thinks, well, why not give adult women the vote as well as adult males? And so you've got this extraordinary emancipatory Pitcairn constitution of 1838, which at one level is an out, uh, a, a product of empire, but which is also pioneering female enfranchisement in some ways. So I, I, I look at these different stories over time in different parts of the world. I'm curious about the legacy of these imperial constitutions. Um, what do some of these case studies look like today and how is the imperial presence sort of carried through? Well, it, it depends on where you look at, but what I would also say, uh, and again, it's why you need to look at constitutions across boundaries, is that constitution making is often a kind of pick and mix process uh, with constitution writers, including in imperial spaces or one-time imperial spaces, taking ideas and language from multiple sources uh, and I suppose one of the great examples of that would be the Indian uh, independence constitution uh, drafted between 1947 and 1949. Um, now about 60% of that text as it was drafted was taken from a British imperial document uh, in the 1930s. But uh, the Indian legislators also took ideas uh, from other parts of the British Empire, like Australia. They took ideas from the United States. Um, they also, of course, took in their own indigenous um, and multiple ideas. Um, Ambedkar, who was uh, one of the leading draftsmen was a Dalit, in other words, an untouchable. Uh, and he had his own ideas of social justice uh, and the relief of poverty that he was determined to uh, make provision for in this Indian independence constitution. So in other words, even in post-colonial states, where you can see the impact still of empire on their independence constitution. These are uh, mixed texts um, because constitution writers instinctively and also out of calculation are taking ideas from different parts of the world. I'm curious about what your research process was like. How did you go about researching for the book? Well, with difficulty, I suppose. Um, I began with the texts of the constitutions themselves. Um, and there's a, a, a wonderful German scholar called Dippel, who, or I'm not sure how he pronounces his surname, but Dippel, no idea. Anyway, um, he uh, created a wonderful collection and ultimately a website of a large number of 
constitutions produced across the globe from 1750. And indeed, there's a, an Oxford website which has also collected a lot of the world's constitutions, though mainly from the 20th century. And so what initially I did was I, I looked at as many constitutions as I could, um, not just in translation, but uh, in their original language. If I didn't have the language, which uh, in many cases I didn't, um, I don't have Chinese, I don't have Japanese, I don't have Russian, um, I would employ research assistants to look at the original and to tell me how the original varied from English translations and so forth, and what was striking about the original text. And that took me a long time. And then I had this great mass of information and I had to reduce it to a manageable book and also to think, well, what themes did I want to privilege? Uh, I also, of course, read a lot of secondary texts on each country's constitution. So, and, and global history has to do this. Global history has to be in part highly parasitic because nobody can be an expert on all the countries of the globe. You are dependent on expert scholars and specialists in these different areas. But what global history can do in return, having been parasitic on specialists, is to create patterns and suggest linkages and connections and influences that are only visible if you look at different parts of the world in tandem and in relation to each other. So that's that's what I try to do in the book. I guess it kind of seems to me that the idea of a constitution is is intrinsically linked to a couple of documents from the Western Enlightenment. Would you say that's true or how have you sort of gone about writing comparative history if that's true? Well, there are undoubtedly um, strong um, links to the Enlightenment. Um, there's also strong links to war, as I say and to the widening demands and costs of war that are becoming evident by the 18th century as warfare becomes more global. So yes, you've got European influences and intellectual influences and legal influences moving into this development, but you've also got strands from other parts of the world. And of course, one of the most famous uh, constitutions comes very early from outside Europe uh, with what's happening in the United States after 1776. Um, but what I have tried to show in my book 
is if you look at how constitutions are moving in to the non-Euro-American world as well by the 19th century, you're seeing large amounts of examples of hybridity. So if you look at the Hawaiian constitution of 1840, um, which is written, first of all, in the Hawaiian language, uh, it's taking things from the West, certainly, but it's also bringing in local legal traditions and it's bringing in distinctive language which has applicability to indigenous religious attitudes, etc., etc. So um, these, again, it's a case of mix and match, or well, not mix, pick and mix, if you like, um, with constitution makers uh, taking things from the outside, certainly, but not in a straightforward um, responding to Western influence. Uh, they're doing something much more complex and multi-stranded than that. Constitutions and warfare have always had kind of an interesting relationship. Um, and I think you're sort of suggesting that constitutions are both a cause and a consequence of warfare um and then also that constitutions um have been used to exclude as well as include but with that in mind to to what extent would you say maybe that violence and warfare are necessary to to promote the stability that a constitution is intended to bring well that's an interesting question i i don't think that constitutions um are particularly stable. I mean, we know that they're not the, uh, I mean, there are, again, the American constitution, the oldest constitution in the world, um, has lasted for a very long time. Uh, too long, perhaps, because it's not easy to amend. And I suspect that, um, indeed, I know that this is one of the problems that the United States wrestles with. Uh, there are other, very uh, long surviving constitutions, that of Norway, uh, which was initially drafted in 1814, though the Norwegians have, I think, been much better at constantly amending and modifying their texts to suit changing conditions. I think Thomas Jefferson said that, in his view, a constitution shouldn't last more than 17 or 18 years. And that seems pretty much to have been the average if you look at global patterns of constitutional longevity. Um, that's pretty much how long most of them tend to last, 17, 18 years. So these are not, um, except in extraordinary situations, they are not magic bullets or recipes for um, guaranteed stability and consensus for the future. Um, you know, they are human creations, they are texts, um, people argue over them, and as situations change or regime change, constitutions shift as well. So 
I don't think I don't think stability is necessarily what these phenomena are about. It's very interesting what you mentioned about the US Constitution maybe having lasted too long. Could you elaborate on that? What do you think is maybe the future of the US Constitution? Well, the, the founders did many wonderful things, but um, unfortunately they did make the process of amendment very hard to do. And I can see why they did that in the circumstances in the 1780s. Nobody knew if the United States would survive. They didn't know if the British would invade again or someone else would invade again or the whole construct would fall apart. So they wanted to try and make it as stable as they could and therefore made the business of amendment very hard to do. But for example, um, an obvious reason why amendments need to be easier is to look at gun laws. Um, It was all very well to talk about the right to arms um, in uh early american constitutionalism when you're just dealing with um late 18th century guns which take two minutes to load and and, you know can't kill many people over a very long distance uh that legislation was never designed for the kind of hardware that people can buy in US gun shops very easily. Um, We know that there's a majority uh, of the American population wanting much tougher gun laws, but that means getting into the Constitution and modifying its provisions. And as I say, that's very hard to do. Uh, there's also the fact, of course, that because it was very early, there's lots of things that aren't in the Constitution at all. Uh, there's no reference to political parties in the US Constitution uh, as drafted in Philadelphia. Well, that isn't the nature of how American politics works. There, so there's this sort of trend in uh, American historiography of thinking of the War of 1812 as sort of the second war of American independence. What do you think of that in relation to this idea of the Constitution and the survival of this young nation? Well, bear in mind that I'm not an Americanist. I, I, I move into all these other uh, specialist histories, but I'm not an Americanist by training. Um, But yes, I've I've read Alan Taylor's excellent book on uh, the 1812 war. Uh, And clearly it's, it was very important. It was very important in lots of ways. Um, It was important, not just for the United States. It was also important for Canada. Um, uh, Canada uh, throughout the 19th century is preoccupied with the possibility of invasion from the United States. And if you look at both the American Revolution and the War of 1812, you can see why they're worried about it, uh, just as they're worried after the American Civil War, when um, some American politicians are saying, well, um, the British didn't play fair, they should really give us Canada as a kind of make up prize. 
Um, and the fear that that might happen is one reason why Canada uh, generates its own new constitutional documents in the 1860s. Again, a case of war and fear of war being a formative influence. But I think what 1812 does do, which is absolutely vital, is that it doesn't so just cement American independence, it also guarantees that um, the United States will be left free to become an empire of its own. Uh, after 1812, nobody thinks that um, another European invasion is likely, and therefore you can focus uh, attention much more on westward expansion, relentless western expansion, uh, which of course is what happened. One of the impressions I get from sort of what, what you said about the book is that societies maybe tended to gravitate towards constitution writing. Um, what do you think about that idea? I I've become a convert to written constitutions. I think that the UK would benefit from a written constitution, though I also think it would be very difficult to uh, implement one. But, you know, it's, it's what used to be called in more sexist times, even than now, a man-made device. Um, and therefore, it's fallible. As, I, as I've said, it's, it's no guarantee of stability. But I do think it can serve a useful set of purposes. It can be um, some kind of protection of liberties. Um, I mean, one analogy which has been uh, talked about is that a written constitution can be like a lock on the door of your house. A lock on the door of the house doesn't mean that you won't get burglars, but at least it means that your house is rather more secure than it would have been otherwise. By the same token, uh, written constitutions are no absolute guarantees, as we see all around the world, of human rights and liberties and democratic freedoms. But at least they put something down in writing, in print, which can go to law courts if they're operating. So it's like a lock on the door. It's not perfect, but it is something. Um, it can help. There was that wonderful um, uh, photograph and image which went around the web earlier this year of a young Russian schoolgirl uh, who was doing a human rights demonstration in Moscow. And um, she was surrounded by um, big, burly uh, riot police uh, coming in to uh, arrest her. And she clearly worked this out in advance. So she sat down on the pavement and started reading out sections of the Russian constitution to them. Um, and they sort of backed off uh, and the scene went viral. Um, and, you know, so at least they didn't beat her up, which um, 
is something. I'll wrap up by asking, since you mentioned Russia, in recent years we've seen quite a few challenges to constitutions in countries with all sorts of political atmospheres. Um, Besides Russia, there's the US, the UK, Venezuela. How do you see these developments in within the historical framework? Um, they're always, as I say, um, you know, these are not recipes for stability. But what they are, and this applies to current crises, once a written constitution is introduced into a society, it can be ignored, it can be pushed aside, but what you almost always get it's rather like a virus um once it's in the body politic um you can't completely get rid of it um and reversions to new constitutions tend to happen at some future point so yes um uh, prime ministers presidents dictators populist rulers Um, are outraging constitutions at the moment all the time. But as I say, these things are there. Um, And once they exist, there is the possibility that they can be reasserted or resought or can be revised in the future. So they reflect an element of hope which I think is important. And they are something that people can refer to uh, and law courts can refer to. But of course, they're not magic bullets. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been a real privilege. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode on history, a podcast from the Oxford University History Society. Remember to come back next week to hear from Richard Evans, acclaimed historian of the Third Reich, as he discusses his most recent work on conspiracies. 